everyone, and welcome to a bonus podcast with my friends, uh, Barry Friedman and David Blatt. So I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Barry Friedman. I have a uh, political blog at FriedmanOfThePlains.com and a stand-up comedian and Ginny's co-host. And I'm David Blatt. I'm a professor of public administration at OU Tulsa and formerly spent uh, a whole bunch of years as director of Oklahoma Policy Institute. And I think David probably knows everything about Oklahoma politics because you were a Senate analyst for a while even before that, correct? I worked uh, three years for the Oklahoma State Senate as a fiscal analyst back in the 1990s when there were actually Democrats at the legislature. Well, we will get into that, why we, why we don't have many Democrats there now. So what we're talking about politics, it's a week out almost. What are the big takeaways locally and nationally? I mean, David, I'm gonna start with you. When you look at the Oklahoma results, what are the what are the key takeaways there? Sure. Um, you know, I think the big takeaway was that uh, Kevin Stitt was reelected governor of Oklahoma by a comfortable margin. And there's two ways of looking at that. Uh, there were a lot of Democrats and even some Republicans who expected this to be a much closer race. We had a number of uh, polls come out in the last couple of months that indicated that it would be a close race. Anything from uh, Kevin Stitt up narrowly to several polls showing Joy Hoffmeister up by, by a few percentage points. And from that perspective, the results were a major disappointment to, to Democrats who had once again got caught up in some irrational exuberance perhaps and had their hopes dashed. Uh, the other way of looking at it is that uh, it has been now since 2006, since any Democrat has won any statewide race. Uh, so we're now uh, in our fourth straight election cycle where Republicans have won every race for statewide office, as well as every race for U.S. Senate. And uh, there was really no great surprise to see that Republicans ended up winning. Uh, Kevin Stitt's margin was actually significantly less than some of the other Republicans or most of the other Republicans on the ballot, uh, with the exception of Ryan Walters for superintendent. So, you know, if you just had uh, gone to sleep in June or July and woken up on election night and looked at the results, you'd have been not at all surprised that uh, Kevin Stitt won one handily. Let me ask you about the irrational exuberance. Are voters lying to pollsters or are pollsters just getting it wrong? You know, I think there's there's a couple of hypotheses and, and we don't know for sure. There was uh, an article in Oklahoma Watch, I believe, over the weekend where the reporter spoke with Lieutenant Governor Matt Pinnell about the results. And his sense was that uh, the race races, because there's actually the governor's race and the state superintendent race that seemed to be moving pretty much in, in tandem and ended up with similar results, uh, but that those races may have in fact been quite tight until the final days when Republicans returned home 
to their natural candidates. And we saw really the same thing four years ago when it was Kevin Stitt and Drew Edmondson. And, and some of your uh, some of our viewers may remember that then two polls were showing a tight race. It was within two to four or six points. Uh, the Democratic Governors Association put money in, Republican Governors Association put money in. Ultimately, Kevin Stitt won handily by, by 12 points. We saw the same same thing again. So to what extent was it a polling error versus what extent was it that the race really was more of a toss up going into the final days when a combination of a bunch of last minute Republican money from the Governor's Association or, and from Kevin Stitt's own pockets, apparently he put $2 million in, um, along with just national storylines kind of overwhelming the Republican race led people, you know, when they actually went out to vote, to go back and vote for their the party they support. Well, now Bill Shepard had written an op-ed earlier that they're having trouble with Republicans participating in polling, that they're just, they cannot get people to participate. And then with the Democrat side, that it's just erratic that their voting patterns are not consistent enough to find sort of an adequate sample on either of those. So he was sort of predicting that the polls, he, he predicted every poll would be off, but by how much and to what degree, I don't know. And he's, he runs sooner poll. <laughs> so, so, you know, and there were some polls, uh, particularly um, Stitt's internal polling, apparently showed him up by 10 or more points. But there was also a poll from Emerson um, College in the last week that showed Stitt up nine points. And they are a respected firm, the 538, which rates all the polls to rates as an A or A minus polling company. Um, Bill Shepard's argument makes a lot of sense. And there's several years of data showing that it's much harder to get Republicans to answer the phone. The problem with his theory is that if you look nationally, the polls actually came pretty close. In fact, if anything, pollsters underestimated the Democrats' performance this cycle with the expectation that they, the Republicans would win a large majority in the House. Um, nationally, the polls you know, either got it pretty close to right, as in the Senate, or underestimate the Democrats. So the problems that he's pointing to seem to have been more severe for Oklahoma than a lot of other states to cycle. Well, if, if Shepard's right, then why even stay in business? If what he's saying is, we can't get this right, they won't answer the phone, Democrats are erratic, then what is the point of having an Oklahoma poll at all? Well, it's, you know, I think there's an insatiable appetite among political junkies and uh, political campaigns for, for polling data. I think the, uh, the demand is, is there. Uh, but there's also, you know, the real possibility that as, you know, if you look at what a poll does, it provides a snapshot. It says, um, you know, at best it can say, look up at the scoreboard and say, here's what the score is at this point of the game. But the game can change. And I, you know, I think there's a good argument to be made that in the final days of this campaign, that Republicans went back and voted for their 
candidates for governor and superintendent. None as large numbers as for the other races. So, you know, if you look at the results for Kevin Stitt and Ryan Walters, they pulled um, pulled at on election day, you know, among actual voters. Uh, they won by 15, 16 points. All the other Republicans were winning by anywhere from 25 to over 30 points. So there were Republicans and certainly independents who did go with Joy Hoffmeister and Gina Nelson. Uh, it's not like those campaigns didn't have any value or, or effectiveness. Um, but I think the biggest aspect of Oklahoma politics, which can easily be forgotten, is that most voters are Republicans. If you look at party registration, what used to be a democratic state is now overwhelmingly Republican registration. So even in 2014, when Mary Fallon won her second term in office, there were more registered Democrats than there were Republicans. And now Republicans enjoy a 20 point margin. And that's a huge, huge obstacle for any Democrat to overcome. You know, and for a while, everybody got caught up in the sense that this election was going to be different and that there would be enough unhappy Republicans and that there was enough money being spent on behalf of Hoffmeister and against Kevin Stitt that maybe, just maybe, the outcome would be different. But when you have a 20, when you have 51% of Oklahomans are registered Republicans and now less than 30% are registered Democrats, that's really hard to overcome. And, and you can't point to any state in the nation this cycle where the party that has anywhere close to that sort of a um, registration disadvantage um, was winning statewide statewide races. Well, and, so, and to, that, to that end, you know, you say, what do we take away? I don't think you can overstate the power of the straight party vote, the straight party option. That has gone up. We're only one of five states that allows it on everything. And it's now 42% of all voters vote a straight party. Right. And that's up from 34% in 2016. And of that 42%, 70% of those were Republicans. So they're, they're, it's a party choice over individual choice. I mean, to me, right. I don't, I mean, as long as you have people that are going to the polls saying, I don't care who the candidates are, I just want the Republican Party. I mean, how are you going to put a dent in that? Well, I think that straight party voting may be having an impact down ballot. When you look at legislative races and DA races and county commissioner and county assessor races, right. I don't think it's having a big impact on the top of the ticket. I don't think if you got rid of straight party voting, People who go to vote on election day know who they want to support for president or governor. They right. want to support Donald Trump or Kevin Stitt or Mary Fallon, if you go back. Or um, you do away with straight party voting, they're still going to go in there and vote for the candidates and for the party who well, they want fine. to talk on the ticket. That's fine. But that, but that would still force someone to think about those down ballots. I mean, uh, even, even if the ballot is completely Republican, I'd say at least make a person, a voter should think about who they want or at least know what corporation commission is, which no one seems to know. So 
Go ahead, Barry. I mean, there's, I, I'm, there's just gonna, I, I'm with, I, I'm with David on this one. I, I think anybody who wanted to vote for Joy Hoffmeister was going to find her on the ballot if you voted for every other Republican. I don't think that straight party voting affected the races as much as we'd like to think it did. Nobody who, as David said, who shows up at the poll is that lazy. If they're lazy, they don't go to the polls. They don't vote at all. But if they show up at the polls, I think they have some idea what they want to do. My question to David is, if that's the case about the 20-point spread in registration, then this isn't a messaging problem. People are voting for the brand, correct? That it, Is there any issue that, that drove Republicans, uh, any issue that drove Democrats in, in the state? You know, I think with, with Republicans, uh, in 2018, when we saw Drew Edmondson faring well, according to the polls, and then Kevin Stitt, who at that point was, was an unknown, um, when based on his, you know, massive support in rural uh, Oklahoma and in suburban areas, uh, I was saying it was Kavanaugh and caravans. It was those big national issues that dominated the airwaves four years ago. This election, I think it was the three Bs. It was Biden, borders, and bathrooms were probably the, the issues that got people thinking that they were unhappy with the Democratic brand and that they were going to continue to vote for Republicans. Um, you know, Democrats have a major longstanding problem in rural Oklahoma, particularly among um, voters without college education, um, with white Christian evangelical voters. And the reality is it's not an Oklahoma, it's not an Oklahoma phenomenon. If you look at the vote in Texas or Florida, or for that matter, Pennsylvania or New York or Michigan, you will see that Republicans dominate rural America everywhere. The Democrats are associated with liberal cultural issues, whether it's gun control or abortion or um, LGBTQ rights or, you know, what, what gets dumped, clumped together as identity politics or culture wars or wokeness or whatever. And I think, you know, Republicans have been very effective for a very long time in making every Democratic candidate into Teddy Kennedy, or Barack Obama, or Nancy Pelosi, or now Joe Biden. And I don't know, you know, what the solution for that is for Democrats. I don't think that there is a short-term solution, um, but Democrats, you know, have not won in rural Oklahoma for, for a very long time. And uh, if you look, whether you look at registration or voting with every election, Republicans just do better and better, including this one where I think Joy Hoffmeister made as good of an effort to compete in rural Oklahoma as as we've seen from a candidate in a while. But since she was, it was primarily education on the ballot. That's what she was focused in on. That's what a lot of people were focused in on. Vouchers are going to come back now. And in a way, people are looking at this takeaway as, I guess, Oklahomans are cool with vouchers. 
because that was the main policy priority for Ryan Walters. And certainly Kevin Stitt has been on that. He's got a chief of staff now who's all about school choice. So, you know, is that now, I mean, do we read this as they're fine with that? Or did the identity culture wars get in the way of talking about those other policy issues? I think it's more of the latter. Um, and I think without question, vouchers is going to be the big issue for the upcoming legislative session uh, and maybe for the next two or three or four legislative sessions. I think there's no question that, that Kevin Stitt and Ryan Walters will claim a mandate for vouchers. And uh, we know that the last legislative session where there was a voucher bill being pushed heavily by both the governor and by the uh, Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat, that uh, Senator Treat could not get a majority of his um, of the Senate to support him. The voucher bill went down in the Senate and probably would have done even worse had it made it over to the House. Um, with with Stitt being reelected, with Walters being elected, there's no question we're going to see another push for vouchers. The question is, what do the legislators do? They've also been elected by their constituents. And there was no, it's not that any of these legislators were elected on Kevin Stitt's coattails. The party makeup in the legislature remained completely unchanged. Uh, of the 125 seats that were up for grabs, there were exactly two seats that flipped, a House seat, that went from the Republicans to the Democrats in Midtown Tulsa, and a Senate seat that went from the Democrats to the Republicans in North Tulsa, Owasso. Mm -hmm. So the legislature, you have this pretty much the same legislatures you had last year where vouchers were pretty much a non-starter. Uh, there's gonna be a big fight, and uh, you know I think there's gonna be different proposals out there um, but I don't know that Kevin Stitt is going to get huge traction in saying, well, I was reelected. This was my platform. Now I expect you all to fall into line. I think there but, may but already be too much see, bad but this blood. This is where I have to push back. See, I, I think that there are going to be some lawmakers out there that they're going to look at how their constituents voted. And if you have, you're facing a voucher bill and your district elected Ryan Walters by 70%, how do you not vote for that voucher? Because that was his primary policy platform. If you're a legislator who was against vouchers and you got reelected, you can say the legislate my voters knew know where mm -hmm. I stand on this. I voted against last year's voucher bill or I mm -hmm. indicated I was against it. They're also going to be hearing from a lot of constituents on this issue. So even by February, March, April, when the legislature is in session, November election is going to be a little bit of ancient history. So I'm, I'm not I'm not I'm not denying that this victory for for Stitt and Walters will have no impact. I'm just not sure that they will introduce a bill, you know, the same voucher bill from last session on the first day of this coming session, and it'll be passed without, um, you know, three weeks later we're going to see it. Uh, see it passed into law. 
I, I wanted to ask one more thing about the Democrats, going back to that, because Barry's brought up this idea of a bad messaging, which I still think there is something to that, because what do the Democrats stand for? I know what they stand against, but what do they stand for? I mean, is that really what is at issue with rural Oklahoma here? Barry, do you want to try that? Oh, I, 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 that's a good question to me. I, I don't know how it is someone is motivated by an issue that doesn't affect them more than they're aff affected by an issue that does. So if you say that we want to keep transgenders out of the bathroom of my child, right? I don't know any parent who really worries about that in the reality, right? There may be an abstract problem they have with it, but I don't know anybody who says, mom, guess what happened today at school? But for instance, in 2021, Democrat, uh, they had the, the, the child care credit, the 200 to $300 that was given to poor Americans, liberals and conservatives. And every Republican voted against that with Joe Manchin. So it went down. That was a real thing that affected real people, including Oklahomans, who no longer had that money. What I'm curious about is what messaging could Democrats have done that they didn't do that said, forget about where transgenders urinate. We're talking about $300 a month you no longer have because these people voted against it. They voted against you. That's why I don't know the messaging. That messaging was pretty clear, wasn't it? Could Democrats have done a better job messaging that? I don't think so. So to answer your point, Jenny, I don't know if messaging is the problem. I think the brand is so strong, the, the, the DNA is so strong that Republicans will vote for Republicans. I mean, look at the scandals around the state administration, right? The only thing he didn't have was a sex scandal. And I'm not sure that would have changed voters. I mean, what would it have taken for Democrats to make inroads in either the Walters race or the Stitt race? I don't know what it would have been. But what about on down ballot? Like what in the legislative races? You know, we J.J. Dossett lost his race and he was a very strong candidate. We have a lot of races that went un uncontested. You know, one of the things Republicans did when they didn't have the supermajority back in the day is they made sure there was a candidate in every single race, even if it was a long shot. There was someone there to vote, you know, against. So... You know, I think that that's got to be a priority is to find someone in every race for starters. On the one hand, I, I sympathize with the dilemma for the Democrats, which is most of these districts are simply unwinnable. Right now, there is one Democrat in the legislature from outside of the two metropolitan areas, and that's Trish Ramson, who represents Stillwater, which is, you know, a little different than most of the rest of rural Oklahoma. But, you know, we mentioned that I worked on uh, Senate staff that was in the late 1990s. At that time, the Democrats held almost every rural seat uh, outside, every seat outside the metropolitan areas. Uh, the Republicans' bases were actually in Oklahoma and Tulsa counties. Now the Democrats have been, you know, essentially wiped out and people run and they may get 25, 30% of the vote um, if it's a good candidate and they run a good race. Um, you're not going to win 
in Altus and Woodward, uh, Guyman, whoever, whoever you put up. Um, but at the same time, you know, speaking to a Democrat who ran and lost fairly narrowly in, in Oklahoma County, and his plea was, you know, the party spent millions of dollars trying to win a statewide race, which in hindsight, uh, or maybe, you know, until mid-September looked unwinnable, and now in hindsight, looks like it was unwinnable again, but people maybe thought differently for, for a brief moment. But his, his plea was, let's put some money into some of the more competitive races in those metropolitan areas in and around uh, Tulsa and Oklahoma City. If you, you know, he said, if I had uh, two or three paid canvassers, he would have won that race. And he's probably right, but he was doing it all in his free time after work with a small group of volunteers. And maybe that's where the Democrats need to be investing money, um, identifying winnable local races, and also, you know, working really hard at the municipal level for city council races, school board races. Um, you know, we had a couple of city council races here that came down to uh, a couple dozen or a couple hundred votes. If there had been more money put into those races, perhaps, and less on some of the statewide races, maybe that's where Democrats can actually see see some progress. Of course, you- those are nonpartisan. I mean, I have to point out that the whole point of that is that they're nonpartisan, although the Republican Party is uh, at the local level are certainly making those more partisan, which I push back on that as well. So go ahead, Barry. I'm sorry to cut you off. Uh, David, you, you've known these Republicans. You've worked with them. You respect a lot of them. Um, and you've often cautioned me about toggling between the real crazies of the Republican Party and the Republicans who keep their head down and, and do the work. Um, I ask this every time Democrats get uh, defeated the way we did in, in Oklahoma. Is there something beyond messaging that Democrats are failing to understand? Is there something out there Democrats are missing that Republicans, without being cynical, are, are hitting that we are not? Honestly, I don't think there's the magic bullet. I don't think there's the one thing or even the two things or the three things they can be doing. Um, You know, Tip O'Neill used to say that all politics is local. And I think that at the time when Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House of Representatives, he was probably right. We're in an era now where all politics is national. And I don't think it makes that much of a difference, really, which candidates Democrats put forward for statewide races, which messages they run on, um, what their ground game looks like, whether they put money into television or or digital. I don't. I, maybe I'm just too fatalistic about it. And I had you know some friends push back a little bit and saying, "How do you conduct politics or hope?" Um, it's, it's a good question, and I'm not suggesting this is going to be like this, be like this forever. But we have two national parties with strong national brands. Uh, we have a 
national electorate um, that is, you know, very set, very polarized, and politics has become very calcified, where, you know, election after election, we see 48% um, are solidly Democrats, 48% are solidly Republicans, and we are spending a hell of a lot of time, money, energy, and and angst fighting over that last 2% in six states that will determine who's president, who has control of the Senate, who has control of the House of Representatives. That isn't the way it's always been in American politics. There was a whole, you know, you had a whole lot more swing voters, swing districts, swing states, and swing elections. And now, you know, we're sort of, we're, we're right here fighting over that, those last contested few inches. How would an abortion referendum work in Oklahoma, do you think? I mean, it passed, it was either protected or not unprotected in states across the country. And was that a positive sign that, that voters were saying, I agree with Republican, Republicans on, on most things, but this one is my issue. We're taking this issue out of politics, out of the election. Was that a positive sign or would that work in Oklahoma? It, well, I mean, it was split. I mean, from what, I mean, you expect California and Vermont to enshrine those, those protections in their constitution, but then it got voted down in Kentucky and um, Mon Montana. So if it were to come up in Oklahoma, I don't think it would be that much different than that. Well, no, in Kentucky, it was... A referendum. Oh, rejected the criminal. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so right, right now, you know, in 2022, there were I think six referenda on abortion, and every one has been decided on the pro-choice or abortion right. rights or um, reproductive freedom side. So, what would happen in in Oklahoma? Um, you know, I think it would be much closer than. A vote in the legislature on abortion. Um, I think it would be closer than what we've seen in most statewide elections, you know, where if you just look at the vote for U.S. Senate, um, Mark Wayne Mullen won by 30 points. Um, I don't think that if you had a vote on abortion that it would, you know, I think it would be, it could be close. It would really depend a lot on how this was worded and um, what was actually prohibited uh, versus allowed. And I think in this case, messaging really would play a role. I think that when you are talking about votes for candidates and offices, that partisan identities just supersede everything else. Yeah, I, I don't think it would have changed the outcome of the votes. Like, I think even if abortion were on the ballot in some way, we still would have had Kevin Stitt, Ryan Walters, you know, I think I, I think the legislative makeup would be the same because I do think people view it separately. They view it. I yeah, and I, and I think the same goes with marijuana. Yeah, I think, and then we've seen also other uh, years where there have been votes 
for some progressive policy measures, criminal justice, oh, justice. Yeah. Um, Medicaid expansion, although Medicaid expansion and marijuana were both June elections. So um, harder to, you know, to, to really see it, see the contrast. But I do think that there is a disconnect uh, between how many voters feel on issues and which candidates they vote for. And I think, you know, broadly speaking, there is much greater support for democratic issues than there are for democratic politicians. And you saw that uh, in a whole bunch of states, for example, that have voted to raise the minimum wage through the initiative petition process um, in 2016, 18, 2020, uh, in states including you know, Arkansas, Nebraska, North Dakota, uh, they voted to raise the minimum wage while at the same time uh, voting quite solidly for Republicans at the top of the ticket and and all the way down. So, you know, I, I think we will still uh, see efforts to get things through initiative petition. I think we will see uh, Republicans try to limit uh, the rights to initiative petition um, over the coming years. But I don't know that there's any issue we can put on the ballot that's going to have much of an impact on the candidates uh, that voters support. And maybe that's where the Democratic victories begin in those initiatives, that you can't get a candidate elected, but maybe you can get a candidate's position passed. And so for many Oklahomans, you, you can have your Republican representatives, but you can also have some freedom of choice. And maybe that's the compromise. Maybe that's how a state like Oklahoma functions. Well, you know, the other thing that, that popped out at me is just the low voter turnout. Oklahoma just, we, what, had 50% turnout? I mean, that's abysmal. I mean, it's probably going to be one of the lowest in the nation, and particularly among the metro areas. So Tulsa, Oklahoma County, and Cleveland County, the most populated counties, only accounted for 40% of the total vote. So nothing on the ballot seemed to galvanize people in the metro areas to just get out and vote. So well, nobody on the ballot. Nobody on the ballot. Maybe, maybe, maybe that, maybe those, maybe those initiative referendums and questions bring people out. I don't know. I mean, what, what do you see in that, Dave? I and mean, when you look back at what has brought out more people to vote, I mean, regardless of how, whether that would have changed the the yeah. the outcome or not, I don't know. But just it just seems wrong that we can't seem to get more people to participate. Yeah, we have very low voter turnout in Oklahoma. Uh, back when I was at OK Policy, um, I wrote a uh, pretty extensive issue brief uh, looking at this and had a whole long list of reforms that might help increase voter turnout, you know, um, extended early voting. Oklahoma only allows early voting beginning, you know, over four days prior to the election, a lot of states have weeks of early voting. A lot of states allow for same-day voter registration. Some states have uh, permanent absentee voting. Um, you know, there, there's a number of things that we could do that would probably help at the margin and might increase voter turnout by a few percentage points. Uh, I don't know that it's going to increase substantially. The biggest thing that drives voter turnout, I think, is more competitive elections. 
and we just don't have many competitive elections. Uh, we don't have, you know, during presidential elections, presidential campaigns don't come to Oklahoma because we have an electoral college that says that it, unless you are one of those increasingly small number of competitive battleground states, um, your results are taken for granted. It doesn't matter whether Oklahoma goes to the Republican by 34 points or 42 points or 67 points, it's going to be seven electoral votes for the Republican regardless. That, I think, um, helps keep voter turnout low. It is, you know, the fact that so so few legislative seats are competitive. And this year, I think we only had 36 um, out of the 125 legislative seats that were up for grabs. I think there were, uh, you know, less than 40 where there were actually two candidates on the ballot in November. So, you know, the fewer significant votes you have, the less people are going to be paying attention and and getting out to vote. Um, it's, it's a big recurring problem. But at the same time, it is worth mentioning that the last several election cycles have seen higher voter turnout than where we were 10 years ago. You know, in 2014, it was something like 42 or 44% of Oklahomans voted. That was up quite a bit in 2018 in the aftermath of, you know, the big fight over education and taxes. Uh, it's gone down a little bit. Um, the last two presidential elections have, you know, been the highest turnout in years. Um, and those were, you know, two very tight elections, uh, but also two elections where, you know, a lot of people felt like the whole future of the country was on the line. I don't know if we want the future of the country to feel so much at stake every time we go out to vote. Is there a candidate out there, David, that you see who's in both camps that can speak to both parties? statewide or nationally. You know, you used to think about Colin Powell, Walter Cronkite, somebody who was trusted by both sides. Is there anybody that comes to mind? You know, I think Joe Biden was an interesting example. Biden was about as consensual a Democratic candidate as you could imagine. Um, and that probably did help him win in 2020 that he was um you know not seen as militant or extreme and yet he was still stamped with the radical socialist label and you know if you ask republicans now how they see joe biden he has the same level of animosity and hatred, and you know he's a radical threat to the country as Barack Obama did, as Bill Clinton did, and I think it's the same thing on the other side. I think you know right now, if you ask Democrats which Republicans do you like, um, you know so, someone mentioned Liz Cheney, a bit of a special case, but let's say let's say Larry Horgan, the, the governor of of Maryland, um, who did win twice in a majority democratic state, um, well-respected across the aisle. If Larry Horgan became the Republican nominee tomorrow, by the day after Democrats would see, you know, say that Larry Horgan wants to take away your 
Social, Social Security and your Medicare, and um, you can't vote for him. He's he's too extreme for the country. So I, I don't know that, you know, I think that we are so, so polarized and partisan identities are so solidified or calcified that I don't I don't know that there is a figure out there who, if they actually ran, would not end up being seen as extreme and threatening by the other party's base. I don't know. Do you guys see? see no, you're like the most depressing person right now. <laughs> it's like the polarized. There's no one there. I mean. But there is a reality. I mean, a pro-choice Republican would never get out of the primaries to begin with. He would never be nominated. Right. So there's, there's a, something yeah. about the closed primaries we have in Oklahoma. I mean, I think in the you're seeing some of the other states that have open primaries or ranked choice voting. They're getting more uh, of that moderate on both sides at the state level. But I think when you have primaries like we have them. Yeah, it's I think you you're going to the extreme, you know, but I don't really see. Ex and I've said, you know, with having met a lot of the, the candidates. I can't point to Democrats in Oklahoma and go, yeah, that's the equivalent to AOC, or that's the equivalent to it. Right. Most and of Joy Hoffmeister, you know, bit of a stretch to call Joy Hoffmeister the same yeah. as uh, AOC oh. or, or Nancy Pelosi, but that's JJ Dawson. And JJ Dawson voted like a Republican in everything except education, and he voted against the vouchers. He voted for local control. But he voted for all of the anti-abortion measures, voted to keep guns, you know, free and open. So, but he still, because you had the D. And so I think that there is something to be said about the primaries. But but I wanted to be, before we get too far along, you mentioned that the national politics, and I agree, the Tip O'Neill days would be nice, but so much of what I hear is just parroting what someone's heard on the from a national pundit. And there's not a lot of understanding that sometimes you know, Tucker Carlson and Rachel Maddow are not news gatherers. They are editorialists. And so there's a, you know, there's frustration on that end. But right now, nationally, you have Donald Trump. You know, the future of the Republican Party is what I want to talk about right now. How does, because nationally, everyone's talking about, gosh, this red wave didn't happen. In Oklahoma, we don't necessarily feel that because we're awash in red. So... But how nationally is that going to play in Oklahoma? Is Trump going to, how is that going to affect the future of the party, both nationally, and will that eventually affect Oklahoma politics? I'm throwing it to you, David Blatt. All right. Um, you know, we seem to be in, in one of these moments where Republicans are having second thoughts about Donald Trump and you know, the evidence of how much Donald Trump is hurting Republicans in those few competitive, swingable states and races. You know, this, this election, it could not have been clearer that Donald Trump's support for candidates like Mehmet Oz and Blake Masters and Doug Mastriano and, you know, in, in state after state um, where the elections really are competitive and Trump weighed in to get his candidate nominated, those candidates did 
really poorly and likely cost the Republicans the Senate. Every secretary of state yeah. in the states, every one of them lost that Trump supported. Um, you know, I, I think Trump still has very strong support, but I think at the same time, if Ron DeSantis could find a way to get himself um, nominated, um, you know, I think Oklahoma Republicans would be fine with, with Ron DeSantis. They're probably, they probably would be fine with Nikki Haley or Mike Pompeo. Trump Jr. Right. So I, I don't know that at this point that Oklahoma's Republicans are more set on Trump than voters in other states. Uh, I just don't think anybody has quite figured out, you know, we're talking Monday afternoon, things may look um, a little different after Trump's announcement tomorrow and how that how that shakes out. But what we've seen time and time again is Republicans have a moment of doubt about Donald Trump and he tweets at them and shouts at them and threatens them and they all fall back into line, even though they know that it's not working out for them. You know, and this time they lost an election that by every metric they should have won. The president's party after you know, the first midterm election historically loses 40 seats. Inflation's at 40 year high. Um, there are uh, major issues at the border, et cetera, et cetera. It should have been a spectacularly good year for the Republicans. It wasn't. And, you know, to oversimplify things only a little bit, the problem was Donald Trump. But how you get him out of there, I don't know. And glad that that one's not my problem. We, not mine to fit. It is my problem. It's just not mine to solve. <laughs> Is is there a, 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 a we keep changing the definition of, of moderate and and extremist? I mean, it seems now that we a moderate Republican is one who accepts the election results. And 10, 15 years ago, that would have been an absurd statement that we'd say, look, Masters accepted his defeat. And there was no doubt, you and I were talking about it earlier, that had Joy Hoffmeister beaten Stitt he would have accepted the results. It seems like we, we keep narrowing the definition of what it is that a, a moderate Republican uh, should be. And I'm just wondering, are we getting to the point where, where those moderate Republicans are just extremists with a couple of sane positions, which we would otherwise uh, infuriate us? I'm not so sure about that. I think, you know, if we look at, in Oklahoma, I think if you look at, um, statewide elected officials like Matt Pinnell, Andrew Drummond, Leslie Osborne, Cindy Byrd, Glenn Mulready, Kim David. These are all Republicans who have shown themselves to be willing to engage in the give and take of, of you know, regular politics, um, to be, you know, who are willing to work across the aisle and compromise. If you look at you know, most of the Republicans in the legislature, um, you know, don't forget that only four years ago that a supermajority of Republicans voted to raise taxes, including on oil and gas companies, to give teachers a raise. Um, I think that you can say that there is still a 
there's a faction within the Republican Party that is very much consumed by um, hysteria over the bathrooms we've been talking about yeah. and are we going to still have a country and you know this is democracy is is under threat from the social and, and there's certainly a discourse there and and we heard it in some of the races i think we particularly heard it in the superintendent race um from the uh incoming state superintendent but i don't think that that applies to to most of the republicans and i think most of the republicans in oklahoma and even more so than nationally but even nationally if you look at the last two years there were republicans most republicans voted for some of joe biden's nominees and for some of the democrats um, legislative agenda there you go jenny positive positive light from david blatt that is right he's just a ray of sunshine that david blatt so but we are sort of at the end of our conversation and i like to give our guests the last word so David, what do you want to say that you haven't already said? Wow, I feel like I've just gone on and on and on. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I do think that um, somebody had asked, I think you asked me, I, I had, um, um, after the election, you said, what, what would be the soundtrack um, for post-election? And um, I came up with a couple of choices, including should I stay or should I go? But for Oklahoma Democrats, I think I think the song to keep in their minds is we won't get fooled again. Because, <laughs> you know, every every four years uh, and again, you know, I, I love hope and, and I greatly admire the candidates who put themselves out there and who try and, you know, who text me to say that the polls show that the race is tightening and, you know, uh, we're within 10 and so on. Um, but it's it's going to be a long time, I think, before Democrats are competitive at the state level. I do think maybe it's time to really start uh, focusing more at, at the local level if, if they're going to have a chance. Um, focus on initiative petitions and put some of that money into some... Um, they question campaigns and, you know, and just realize um, that there are good people and bad people in the Republican Party and, and do what you can to uh, try to lift up, lift up the better ones. I like the idea of having a playlist. We'll have a, a political playlist from David Blatt <laughs> available soon on Spotify or wherever you get your music. So, um, and then you can, you know, Play, you know, open for Barry at the at the next uh, comedy hour at the press club. So right. do that. That would be the depressed club. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. There you go. I just want to say that if there was any doubt in Joe Biden's mind whether or not he should run again in 2024, Tuesday's election emboldened him. And there's no way he's not running in 2024. That's my prediction. We'll and see. He's, not, and he's, he's going to run because he knows unlike any other Democrat who can say this, Joe Biden can say, I beat Donald Trump. Well, we're going to have David Blatt back on before the legislative session so we can talk a little bit more about what 
Oklahoma will be facing next year in, in politics. So thank you very much. And I hope everybody has a good week. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye.